0: Morning, everyone. I'm reading from James chapter four, verse thirteen. So if you have a Bible with them or on their phone, they want to open up James chapter four, verse thirteen. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Thank you, and um, over to Raj, uh, with mention that uh, obviously with the screens not working, there is no brilliant PowerPoint that uh, usually is uh, projected onto the screen, so this is your moment to either take notes if you've got a pen and paper, um, or we will forgive you if you're taking notes on your phone as well. The preacher has left the stage. He's back. Who would like to borrow my Bible? You don't have a phone, you don't have a Bible, would you like to borrow mine? Nobody wants to admit they don't have one. So if you would, you can come grab it at any stage. It's right here. We're in James chapter 4, and I was uh, listening to Cape Talk, as I do, and uh, sometimes I enjoy it, sometimes I don't, but Cape Talk uh, brought up the topic of the happiness index. I don't know if you know about the happiness index, but the happiness index basically tries to measure how happy people are in our country. And what do you think the 2022 happiness index has done in the last three weeks? It has taken its lowest dive yet. South Africans are less happy than we have been all year, according to the happiness index. Now, that... uh, is my way of introducing the fact that the happiness index tends to get South Africans thinking all kinds of thoughts. And they're not original thoughts, right? I mean, we've heard of people thinking of new and supposedly greener pastures around the world for a long time. But when the happiness index hits the lows that it does and we're in our next version of level six, we've had levels in 2020, we've found new levels in uh, through ESCOM. We are struggling with kinds of levels, and the happiness index gets low, and people start considering, where is the good old green mamba? What exactly could be better than this? And if you don't know what the green mamba is, it's our South African passport. And people begin to imagine what a life would be like without load shedding, with lights that are on when you wake up, with a sense of things working. Now, I am probably getting some real frowns from people who are just like me. I'm a patriotic South African. I do not find myself easily swayed or easily moved to consider greener pastures. But actually, what James is talking about today, and I'd love you to keep your Bibles open because this is not a talk per se, this is a unpacking of the scriptures. And so I want you to look at this text. I want you to keep open. James chapter 4, verse 13. And uh, we're going to go through this because James begins to ask this question of what does it mean to think about moving? How should we consider our lives? How should we consider this big question? And around the world, there are people who move and come and go and make big life decisions. And and I don't think James is primarily here talking about immigration. I don't think this text was prepared for South Africans uh, who know about places like Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. He wasn't waiting for this moment in history. He's known that in the human heart, for as long as humans have existed, there has been this amazing sense that the pastures are greener just over there. Things could be better just over there. If we just got over there, it would be without load shedding. Oh, our kids would be saying, so, oh, imagine walking down the streets. And there's a sense of people always longing for a better uh, day, for, for a new and preferred future. And James looks at people and he begins to unpack, how should we process our lives? How should we consider the future? What should we do with these longings, with these realities inside? And, and, and it's a really amazing and, and, and hyper skillful uh, message that he begins to bring to us. And I hope that I can do it justice. A couple of disclaimers, maybe before we start. Firstly, I don't think here, as we read this passage, that James is condemning immigration, So if you have considered it or you have emigrated or whatever it may be, James isn't condemning immigration. So don't don't feel some heavy judgment coming in in that sense from uh, James or from me for that matter. I also don't think he's primarily addressing the concept of immigration as the primary thing. He's not kind of going, you know, we live in this world that just people love to move and go from one city to the next. He's not primarily addressing that as the scriptures are always about not primarily our behaviors and our actions, but our hearts in those behaviors and those actions. And so I'm going to try my best today to just go line by line through this text, and by the end of it, I think we will have ourselves a healthy framework to consider not just uh, immigration, which is a hot topic in South Africa, but consider how we move and what do we look for and how do we process the moves that we make in our lives, whether it's buying a car, starting a new relationship or moving to a different city. And one of the dangers when we read a text like this is we read these texts kind of going, I just want the answer. Give me the bottom line, Roger, I, I don't want to kind of go through all this stuff. I want to know at the end of the day, what do you say? Yes or no, should South Africans be looking for greener pastures or not? And the Scriptures are just so beautifully ambiguous. They don't do that for us. They don't, the Scriptures never leave you with this lovely bottom line going, cool, tick. Got the pastor's approval. We can go now. He just doesn't do that. He always aims at the heart. And so he starts in verse 13. Now listen. James is, uh, he, he seemed like a strong guy. He had some moments where he, he picked up his voice. It felt like this was one of the moments where he was particularly frustrated. And, and James, remember, as we've been reading, we're back in the book of James. We're gonna finish James by the end of the year, guys. Good on us. We're gonna have gone through the whole of James and uh, hopefully we'll be wiser for it. And we're in this place now where he continues. He's he's obsessed with the proverbs. He loves the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Many people call James the, the New Testament's wisdom literature. It's the proverbs of the New Testament. And he carries on just laying out this wisdom. But now he's he seems to have like just kind of been waiting for this moment. You know, when you've got a conversation you went over with a friend and you're waiting for that moment to really tell them what you really want to tell them? but you biding your time. It seems like he's been biding his time. And now he raises his voice. He says, now listen. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. He looks at these guys and he says, listen, guys. So who's he talking to? He's talking to people who seem to have this worldview of actually You just go where where the money flows. You go where the opportunities arise. It was an opportunity we couldn't let go of. It was an opportunity we could never say no to. He's looking at people who are opportunists. I love how Michael Eaton describes his audience. He says, this audience who James is writing to, he's, he's looking at the person who is a respectable backslider. A respectable backslider. It's it's the person who has known the beauty of Jesus Christ, who's, who's put his faith in Jesus. And uh, in a way, uh, after putting his faith in Jesus and seeing that Jesus is good and he's king and he's kind and he's gracious, he's almost put Jesus just in his briefcase along with all the other folders and files. And he said, you know, Jesus is nice. I pull him out from time to time, but there's other great opportunities. There's other things I need to do. And so Jesus is just a lovely addendum to my very busy, very fruitful life. And I've got lots of stuff I wanna do, much I want to accomplish. Jesus, you're welcome to come along. Here's your spot to my briefcase. Here's your spot to my life. I'll put you in there and I'll pull you out when I need you. A little like a genie in a bottle. And James is addressing this respectable backslider pitches up a church, does all the right stuff, but in a sense, hasn't given his whole heart to Jesus. He's, he's become a little too content to just pitch up and to do his thing. Some people say, pay, pray, and get out of the way. Just kind of stay out of the way, not cause too much fuss in the world, and just get on with whatever makes you happy, the respectable backslider. And James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or, or that, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. He, he's looking at the kind of person who tends to primarily have a financial angle to almost all the decisions they're making. They seem to just always be looking at, how does this work out financially? How's it gonna help me to pay the bills? How's it gonna help me to you know make sure that the retirement is solid? How's it gonna make sure that I uh, can get my kids through the very best education systems? How is it going to make sure that I am In control. I think that's one of the big ones. And I think at this point, as you look at James and who he's writing to, you might expect me to begin to rattle off a list of, you know, the statistics on moving city or changing communities and go, you know, it's really dangerous. You, you, you should not leave community too quickly. You know, as a good pastor, trust me, the, the risks are really high of your family being uprooted and the friendships that you've got. And, you know, we could write about some of the stats. And, and I actually couldn't find any of those stats. I looked around, I couldn't really find any major stats on the dangers of changing community or moving city, and, and it doesn't seem like that's part of James' concern either. You see, the wisdom that James wants to bring is not a, a worldly wisdom, in, in so many ways the wisdom that James brings is, is contradictory to the wisdom that we understand. It's the wisdom of Jesus. If James isn't quoting from the Proverbs, he's quoting from the parables of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus all the time. It's, it's peppered through and you'll hear it even in this language. And if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus' wisdom was basically upside down. Jesus didn't look at our lives and, and basically go, you know what? You need to consider what's best for your kids and your family. I mean, think of Peter, who stands up. The, the very first powerful sermon that's ever preached is preached by a married man who puts his life at risk and basically goes, you know that guy that you guys killed? His name's Jesus. You guys crucified him. He is now Savior and Lord. And as much as you try to shut me up, I'll never shut up. And he puts his life at risk. The very guy who was crucified, he looks at the people who crucified him and he says, you did it. He accuses them of murder, the very murderers in front of a huge audience. He doesn't choose the wise option as a good husband and a father. He chooses the gospel option. He chooses the wild option. And James runs in this lineage of people who had gone into the unreached parts of the world to preach the gospel. The wisdom that James is preaching here and speaking about is not white picket fenced and neat. There's nothing wrong with a picket fence. I love a good garden, trust me. But let me tell you, He's not preaching wise and tame. He's preaching wise and gospel. He's preaching the the truth of what it means to really follow Jesus. And he's not trying to make people feel as this wisdom that's going to keep them safe. He's trying to preach them into understanding the glory of Jesus. You see, I think another disclaimer and something that I think is important in our World and, and in our church and community is that when he is talking about wisdom and he's, he's writing to these people, he's writing to people who understood what Jesus said when he said, you must be born again. Now, we don't talk about that term very often in our church, and, and there's a number of reasons, and maybe it's, we've become a little gun-shy because, you know, a lot of people go, oh, are you one of those born-again Christians? And, and the term born-again has kind of been poo-pooed by society. But, but the point is, is the word born-again comes straight from the very mouths of Jesus, where a guy named Nicodemus creeps up at night, and he goes to find an audience with Jesus because he's too ashamed to speak to Jesus in the day, and he says, Jesus, teach me, tell me, what do I do to get this life? And Jesus says, no one can come to the kingdom of God unless he is born again of the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus goes, how could that possibly be? How can you be born again? How can you enter into a mother's womb twice? This just doesn't make sense. And, and he says, no, you get born again of the Spirit of God. The The Spirit of God says Jesus comes to a human being and regenerates them from the inside out. It's the most magnificent and marvelous thing that happens. And you need to understand this teaching if you're gonna understand the rest of James. Because if you don't, what ends up happening is you begin to read James in a kind of way that you might read one of your favorite self-help books. You go, oh, cool. Oh, you you know, maybe we shouldn't travel so much. That's pretty wise. We should root our family. Sounds really good, you know, and find a good school community for our kids and grow old there. That sounds like good wisdom. But actually, James is writing to people who he trusts have been born again of the Spirit of God. And I don't know if you can recall a moment or maybe a kind of season in your life where you experienced what would be called a new birth, being born again. It's an important thing to to ask the question of. You see, some people describe the born-again journey almost in two ways. You can either have a bee sting type experience. I think that would be describe my life, April 2003, April 21st. I had a bee sting moment. It was like I went to bed one day and I was uh, far from God, rebelling and doing everything my own way. I woke up the next morning and I was like, this is not going to happen anymore. I, I, I received grace. I believed the gospel. It was like things turned around. I was not perfect thereafter. Don't get me wrong. Made loads of mistakes. But it was like that day stuff changed. Other people, almost you can't describe a day, but you can describe a season. You can describe maybe it was a couple of months or, or a few years where suddenly it was like the lights just switched on and you saw Jesus. And what happens when a person is reborn is that this 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 life of following Jesus becomes a high privilege. Like the, the words of scripture are no longer just like stories about this guy named Jesus. They become the very uh, curriculum for your life. You look at the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and you go, there's nothing more amazing I could do with my life than to read what he did and then to re-replicate it in my own life and to see what he said and try to obey what he says and to look at the way that he lived and to find myself caught up in that story and living that out. This new birth, it's like you can't even understand why from one day to the next, the words of Jesus that sounded so just insipid and cold suddenly switch on and become alive and and epic in your heart and you go, there is nothing I wanna do more than to love and follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the language, and even pitching up at church, and you thought those guys were just weirdos clapping their hands, suddenly you find yourself going, they're not weird. They've found something, and it's alive in their hearts. And when they sing, they're not just singing. They're singing because a song has been placed inside of them. They've been born again. They're alive to God. There is nothing better for them to do. If they could sing all day, they would, until their voices were gone, because they've just found God. They've been born again. And Jesus carries on. He says, it's the Spirit of God that does this work. One of the tragedies of many of our salvation, reborn kind of experiences is that the hope would be that soon after, you put your faith in Jesus, soon after somebody comes by your side who's mature, who loves Jesus, and they grab your hand, they say, come, let's go. Let me show you what Jesus really says about this. Let's discover these scriptures. Let's talk about what it really means to pray. Let's talk about what it really means to trust him. Let's talk about what it really means to live your life in this world. Let's talk about what's going on in your heart when you're thinking of uh, marrying that person or, or moving to that place. What would Jesus say? How do, you, how do you process your decision-making through the lens of this king who's given you a new birth? And what happens is many people don't have that. And so Jesus and this new birth experience just becomes a Nice little add-on and you slot him in and you've kind of got what some people call the defective discipleship. He's just become a nice add-on. You remember that, that season where, you know, there was gooey feelings inside and those feelings subsided and the whole thing of following Jesus just became part of everything else. James is wanting to say, no, no, no. No, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the point here. That's not what I want for you. And so he carries on in verse 14. He says, I wanna coach you. Why do you, you don't, in verse 14, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. If if you're born again, you're born again into a world whereby suddenly you realize, I'm not even in control of what might happen tomorrow. And I'm okay with that. For the first time in my life, I can deal with that. It's, It's not as stressful as it used to be. I have no idea what might happen tomorrow. I think James's first point in this whole decision-making thing would be plan like you're not in control. Plan like you're not in control. How different would your planning life be if you just planned like you weren't in control? Does James discourage planning? No. Does Jesus discourage planning? Absolutely not. He planned all the time. But planning like you're not in control is probably a wiser way to do it. Hey, I did a memorial for a person, uh, I reckon about 12 days ago. And uh, he arrived in Cape Town uh, from KZN, had decided that this would be the new place to live, close to family, and uh, had been here for seven days before passing away. It's tough. We, we, we think we, we've got all, it all worked out. We're gonna be close to the family. We've got it all sorted. And the next thing, it doesn't happen that way. We, we, we plan like we're not in control. James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Who's he quoting? He's quoting Jesus, right? Sermon on the Mount. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You've got no idea. So James carries on. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Secondly, plan your life aware of how fleeting and brief it actually is. He says, your life is like a mist. I've kind of seen people smoking uh, e-cigarettes, vapes, you guys spotted the vapes these days, they're all over the show, and um, I believe somebody told me, a high schooler, I don't know if you're here, but you were teaching me, that they're um, really popular amongst high schoolers, why, because they look like pens in your pocket, and because the mist or the smoke or whatever you would call it, the vapor just disappears quickly, so uh, I hope I'm not teaching anyone anything here, (laughs) this is not what I'm, not where I'm going here. But if I am, it's a pleasure. Come pay me later. The point is, is this vape uh, mist just disappears so quickly? And and that's actually the language that James is using here. It's like a puff of smoke. the 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 real translation is, it's like your your life is like a puff of smoke that comes and it quickly goes. I was reflecting on even just our own last sort of ten years, and I, I don't know if you next uh, we were chatting about it, but I said to her, I think a week ago, I said it feels like almost yesterday, the chief phoned me and she said, the doctor has said, Chloe's coming now. And I got in my car and I drove straight to Kingsbury Hospital and 45 minutes after, there's my new little baby girl in my arms. It felt like it happened yesterday. It really, I could tell you exactly, I can almost remember the work I was doing. It happened so recently. Honestly, it feels like just the other day that I arrived in Cape Town to come study. I remember exactly the car we were in. I remember what it felt like to drive in. In fact, the first house we stayed in was at my auntie's house in Tableview. So it, it, it was like just the other day. But it's 22 years ago, and how quickly stuff happens. They say the days are slow, but the, the years go fast. James isn't saying your life is worthless. No, Jesus tells us all the time. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He cares deeply about the details of our lives, but he pulls us back for a moment and he says, stop making decisions, firstly, as though you're in control, and secondly, stop making decisions as though you're gonna live forever and that your life is some monument to yourself. Your life is just a mist. It's gonna come and it's gonna go, and as quick as it comes, it's gonna go, and what are you gonna have Left? Have you built a life upon the foundations of Jesus? Or have you built it upon your own need to earn money, to do stuff? Eugene Peterson tells this cool story. Uh, Him and his wife would go to these uh, retreats at these um, sort of uh, monastic monk kind of places. And um, basically, the one day they're walking to lunch with one of the monks. And as they walk through, they walk past the graveyard that's outside the sort of church uh, prayer room, and his wife Jan looks and sees a, a hole that's dug in the ground, and she goes, oh, shame, has somebody just died? And the monk goes, no, no, that's for the next one. No, no, that's for the next one. She, said, what do you mean? No, no, we always dig a new one for the next person who's coming. Three times a day, they walk past an open grave to remind themselves that one of them could be next. There was another monastic practice where they would get a skull. And as they were writing and practicing their their, uh, silence and solitude and all the other practices, they would have a skull living on their table. And every time they would work, they would remember, that could be me, soon. That could be me. We, We live in a world that goes, fill in the holes, get rid of the skulls, and make sure that we don't think about death. It's never coming. James says, your life is like a mist. You can work hard, you can earn money, but let me tell you, it goes as fast as it comes. Start planning, he says. In verse 15, he says, instead. There's some cool ways to do it. It's not as depressing now. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So he says, this is what you should do. Instead of looking at your life and going, how do I accomplish? How do I get career? How do I find myself earning more? Just put that aside. Your life's a mist, you're out of control anyway. Why don't you try to do something that people have been doing for a long time? Try to discern the will of God. I think people have got so confused by this concept that we've just put it aside. We're putting it back on the table today. Discerning the will of God is something that followers of Jesus have to learn to do. And I'm inviting you to journey with me. There's three basics that God has given us in how we can discern the will of God. The one easiest way to do it is just to get yourself into Scripture. It's the easiest way to generally pick up the pattern of God's behavior and the way that He leads and guides us. Now, there are ways to manipulate God's will if you want. You can find a Scripture to justify anything you want you could say, you know what, Abraham moved to another country, so I'm going. It's easy. Look. Haha, <laughs> you're laughing because you've done it. <laughs> it's easy. We can find a scripture to justify anything. Our favorite thing, you go, oh, gee, I opened my Bible, you can't believe it. This guy got a new thing given to him by God. I'm getting that car I've been staring at all week. Amazing. You can find it, and that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that you read the Scriptures to, to capture how God works. That requires time, it requires effort, it requires submersion. It's like a good steak marinating. You've got to be inside of the Scriptures, inside of the heart of God and Scripture to know and discern how would God, how has God, how does God seem to work? First one is Scripture. The second one is uh, we discern God's will through leadership and trusted community. This is an important part of how we learn the will of God. We find ourselves actually submitting our lives to to people who who lead us, who love us, who who we trust and and who trust us. This is important. And trusted community does not equal experts in the field. It does not equate to that. What I'm not talking about is, okay, so I'm thinking of buying a car, so um, I need to find somebody who knows lots about cars. Because that that is cool. You can do that at the end of the process. But often we do that, and we find somebody who knows lots about cars. And what do they do when they know lots about cars? They help you find the best car for you. And so you go to your expert who knows cars, and he says, no, don't get that one. Get that one. You go, oh, thank you. But you go to a trusted person who loves Jesus and loves you. And the first question they ask you is not, what car are you looking for? They say, why do you want a car? What, what, what type of, what's, what's motivating you? What's wrong with the one that you've got? Oh, I, I don't know. Just want one. That one looks shiny and nice. Oh, okay, well, let's talk more. What exactly about its shininess makes it necessary to live in your garage? Well, I don't know. Trusted friends, and, and they, they're not interested in the outcome. They're interested in your heart. They're interested in your processes. They ask the question, can you afford it? Is it wise? Is it good for your family? Is it good for the people around you? You see, that's about getting perspective, not getting permission. You're not saying to your friends, can I do this? Can't I? It's about building enough relationship to get wisdom in the big parts of our lives where we're about to do things. To be honest, every time I bought a car, uh, last time I think I I referenced Chris and Tashis and went, guys, is this a good idea or not? And, uh, and we had some really good chats around the why, the what. What is it all about? And it's really vulnerable, by the way, when you do that, because you're going, I'm putting my decision-making in your hands. And that's kind of scary. But James says, actually, if it's the Lord's will, we should do things. We shouldn't just be going about it our own way. And then, of course, we, we, we try to discern from the Spirit. Sometimes you don't even need to phone a friend. Sometimes you don't even need to open the Bible. You already know it's a no. Ugh. I just know there's a bad idea. Just put the car magazine down and keep moving. The Spirit's already told me I don't need a car. Put it down, move on. We buy cars, close it, push the X, and move forward. How do we normally do try to discern God's will? We feel the desire, like the car. We then feed the desire. We spend time in the magazines. We then justify the decision in many creative ways to the point that we go, I'm doing it. And then we go public with our decision and people go, wow, well done, nice car, love it. Right? We do it the other way around. We don't follow the wisdom pattern, which is to submit our lives to one another, to discern the will of God. And then to go, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Our generation, I think, tries to basically create a new gospel of what is the will of God. And we've got these two E's and two C's that tend to dominate what we think the will of God is. Economy, we go, God wants me in a good economy. Who said? Who said? Education, God wants the best education for my kids. Who said? Career, God wants me to find the best career so that I can become the best whatever. Who said? To Jesus? Children, my children need the best possible upbringing possible. Who said, who said they need to be in the best school ever? Now I'm playing devil's advocate, you may never come back, I realize it. (laughs) Education, economy, career, children, we think that they are paramount in our lives and I wanna suggest that Jesus says he is paramount. What if he says go live somewhere where the education system is awful? What if he says stay somewhere where the education system is crumbling? What if he says that you should uh, kind of go or, or live somewhere where the economy just isn't doing what you want it to do? What if you need to make decisions that cap your career for the good of the glory of God and those around you? What if? The point is then is, have you been born again? Have you seen that he really is king and that he's worth making those decisions for? That's the big question. Anyone who says following Jesus is just sacrifice-free, joy, bliss all the time, never make tough decisions. You're on another planet. That's not Jesus' planet. Sometimes it's just tough. The joy of it is that it bears fruit into eternal life. The joy of it is that we can see the King, that we understand who we're doing it for and why we're doing all of it. Most of you are going to come back next week? Cool. He said... Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. He doesn't even take for granted that you'll live and do this or that. As it is, we're in verse 16 now. Anybody need the Bible? It's still available. You boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. I don't know. I I, I don't know what the boasting exactly is. But it's not necessarily. He says, boast in the schemes. It's not people who are going... Oh, I just walked down the streets of New Zealand and no crime, just so happy. I don't think that's the boasting because it it might be, but the boasting that seems like is that there is a sense that, I've got family and friends in New Zealand, love you all. There's a sense that they're boasting in their false sense of control. They're boasting in their false sense of the length of their life. He's going, you you think you're gonna live forever. You think that you're gonna be able to enjoy the mountains of Canada forever. They're gonna be gone eventually and you're going to have to stand before your maker because your life is a mist and you're out of control. And it doesn't matter where you live per se. This is not a talk primarily about immigration. He's looking at the heart. He's going, who's your king? Who's guiding your decision-making? Why are you boasting in your sense of control when you need to understand you're not in control? There's a king who is, why not serve him? Why not let him love you in this out-of-control feeling that you have? Maybe you'll actually have less mental health challenges if you trust him with the stuff that is so big, so dear. Okay, if anyone there knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. That's verse 17. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, some of you who came here going, give me the bottom line. Is it okay? I've got the passport. It's already stamped. I'm ready to go. Is it okay? Can I go? If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. James is annoyingly ambiguous. Here. He does this big ramp up and then he goes, you need to discern the will of God. You need to know your own heart. You need to work out what's going on. You need to bring it before godly, trusted community. You need to get perspective. You need to find what is God doing in the world. And by the way, he's gonna carry on in chapter five and he's gonna talk about our approach to the poor. And he's gonna say one of the big decisions we need to make is are we trying to avoid being close to the poor? And are we trying to make our, line our own pockets so that we can do career and, and, and education and all those other things for ourselves, or are we actually living in a way that cares about the poor? It's a, it's a massive challenge. Michael Eaton is super helpful, and I'll land here, and maybe the band can make their way up. He says, you know, sin is often seen as kind of just breaking the law, transgression of the law. But what if there is no written rule about what we should do next? What if there's no rule? Where, do I go or don't I? Do I stay or don't I? There's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. What, what do you do with that? Michael Eaton, he says, living without principle, he says, there can be a sin where there is no written law at all. God may be leading you to do something for a poor neighbor. There's no law about it. You can be moral and upright, yet do nothing about the poor person nearby. But sin is not the transgression of the law. Sin is anything that goes against what is right at all times, and even what is right for you right now at this moment. I love how Jesus leaves us hanging. How many times Jesus walked away? I think he dropped the mic off the stage and he said, Now deal with it. I don't have your answer. I can't tell you what to do. What I can tell you is how to view your life. You're not in control, your life's a mist, you need to be born again. You need to have a new birth. You need to trust that God is as kind as He says He is and that He gave us Jesus Christ, the Son of God who lived the life we could never live, who died the death we should have died on our behalf for our good and His glory so that we could have our lives renewed and you can have yours renewed and you can begin to understand that there is a King in heaven named Jesus who loves you more than you love yourself. And he might give you a great career and he might get your kids into great schools and you might have a wonderful life filled with picket fences and joy. But that's not the main point. The point is that you have found your new center. You found the new song that stirs your soul and you live for him forever. James' friends are ready to forget the church, says Michael Eaton. Forget the needy and rush off to do business in some faraway city. James says, you're a respectable backslider. Start considering the will of God for your life. To the person who knows what is the good thing to do, but does not do it for that person, it's sin. Let's close our eyes. Maybe you wanna stand with me. Today, Lord, we come to you not to get more control, but to recognize actually that we're out of control and that our life is a mist. For some of us, we realize we need to be born again. We need to trust you. To be born again is to to trust in Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me Will never thirst. He wants to give you a life source that maybe you've never t- had. And all the Bible says is that you repent, you turn over your your ways of thinking, you turn over the control of your life, and you give it to Jesus. You trust Him to be the King. And an amazing exchange happens in that as you give Him. Your life, you realize that he is actually giving you much more than you ever imagined. He's giving you his life. And when he gives his life, you know it. And for some of us, even this morning, it's maybe a homecoming, you've drifted. You become a respectable backslider and you've just forgotten. You've shelved him. You pull him out of the shelf from time to time. But Jesus cannot be shelved. He's a mighty king. He's sovereign over all things and he demands our full allegiance. And today it's to stop fooling yourself that he can live on a shelf when he needs to live on the throne of your heart, leading and guiding every part of what you do and say. He's the only one who loves you the most and knows you the best. So today you you do what people have been doing for thousands of years. So you turn over. You turn your way of thinking, your way of living over to Him. It's called repentance. You change because He's come to you first. Maybe it's the first time you're doing this, and that's just wonderful. You do the same thing. You say, Jesus, I'm done going my way. I want to go your way. I'm done living in my best for me. I want to live in your best for me. Me trying to be in control seems to get me in all kinds of knots. You being in control, I'm going to trust that. I want to follow you. I want to believe that your love is as good and sacrificial as you say it is. And I want to learn to become an apprentice of your ways. You say that to Jesus. You're going to be saying that for the rest of your life. Teach me to follow you. Jesus, wake us freshly. Wake us even this morning. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, says the famous hymn. We come home again today. We come home often and we're grateful that as returning prodigals, you're always graciously taking us in, graciously bringing us to new life, graciously creating a party for our souls that we might revel in your kindness. And because of that grace, we align ourselves to your kingship. And we ask you to lead us and to guide us to become freshly aware of your will. God, if it is the Lord's will, may that become a sentence we learn as a community that becomes part of our story that we learn to answer. We learn to help each other through discerning the will of God together, loving each other into the best big and small decisions that we possibly can for the glory of God and the good of one another. Coach us to that end. As we sing, we let the song marinate the wonders of this text into our hearts. We don't move to you or to this text feeling condemned. We move excited to trust the King who loves us. In Jesus' name.